Or if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to open it up to Acts chapter 9. Just one note as you're turning there uh, about just Easter plans. That's coming up. That's two weeks from today. So next week, uh, Palm Sunday, uh, will we'll look just like it has the last number of weeks. So 9 o'clock uh, worship service, kind of a simplified service without singing together. Uh, people wearing masks for those that need to be more cautious in that way. Uh, on Easter Sunday, uh, it's going to look a little different though. So Easter Sunday, which is two weeks from today, we're going to have two worship services we want. We don't want to exclude anybody from being able to come and worship with the church on Sunday morning, on Easter Sunday. So we're going to have an 8.30 worship service, okay? So no Sunday school that day, 8.30 worship service, uh, and, and there we're going to ask that everybody wear a mask at that service so that people that need to be in an, a, a situation where everybody's wearing a mask can come and join in a full worship service that time. So we'll be doing singing and everything else, 8.30 on Easter morning. Uh, if you're, if, and then 10-15 uh, will be a worship service much like this, like we've been having uh, for the last number of weeks, regular worship services um, uh, with singing and everything, and masks optional for those that would want to do that. So that's two, So no Sunday school uh, on that day, uh, no Easter breakfast or anything like that, but we, we want to make uh, primary what is primary, and that is gathering together uh, to worship. And so 8-30 and 10-15, uh, that will be happening on Easter Sunday. So, uh, good to be together. I'm grateful that uh, Nick and Jen did that video. Kirsten mentioned to me, man, I'm glad they didn't make us do that uh, <laughs> um, back, in, back in the day. I don't think video was invented yet. Uh, so, uh, no, but I'm really glad uh, that they did that. That gets you to get to know them. And it's made me reflect a little bit, you know, as they're uh, finishing up school and looking for, already been called the pastoral ministry uh, and looking for uh, first church in which the pastor reminds me of uh, our time. Uh, so my timeline was this, God saved me uh, at the beginning of my college years and got a chance to grow during that until uh, God called me to pastoral ministry right at the end of our time in college. And then I realized I was not prepared at all. I didn't go to college uh, in order to be a pastor. Went to college in order to be a teacher, so I needed some training. So went from there then to three years of seminary, uh, and then that's a picture of me graduating from seminary. Uh, and then I got to go from there uh, to be a pastor in the first church that would be a pastor in. It was really a pretty, uh, so it was just Kirsten and I at that time. And we got to move from our apartment in the St. Paul area, which is where Nick and Jen are now. And we moved out to Yankton, South Dakota, uh, where I would become the youth pastor at a church. We would move, we would buy our first home ever. We bought it without even Kirsten seeing it. Uh, we bought it three bedrooms, one bath, ranch style home, very cozy, but very comfortable, a great place uh, for us to live. And so we moved into that comfortable home. And I moved all my stuff into a comfortable office and got to work getting to know the staff and the people of the church, getting to know the students, forming relationships, teaching them the word. And so uh, really pretty kind of standard, I think, start to what uh, the first years of living out my calling as a pastor would look like. God was in the midst, of course, of carrying out and still is, of carrying out a much bigger plan and it was good for us to realize that we were a small little part, small, uh, small little family in a small little church in a small little state with only a few people. Uh, and, uh, and God was at work doing a work there, just as he was already at work doing a work here and in so many other places around the world. Well, as we get to the book of Acts, we've seen that, that God had a plan. And Jesus made that clear to the disciples in Acts 1.8, right? That they would be filled with the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, 
And their job was to be his witnesses. Starting there in Jerusalem, and then expanding to Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And so, in the first seven chapters, basically, we saw how God was fulfilling that work through his disciples in Jerusalem, right there in the first seven chapters. But as the gospel, so the people got together, the people prayed, and God saved people as the gospel was proclaimed. But the other thing that was happening in chapters 1 through 7 is opposition began to rise. And it got to the point that by the time we get to the end of chapter 7, we see an execution taking place of a man who had the courage to stand up and tell the truth about Jesus. We're also introduced to a young man named Saul, who was very well-educated, very religious, and very zealous and ambitious, and he was the one overseeing in some ways the execution of this young man named Stephen. But then we move on to chapter 8, and we see that, in fact, where it looks like, oh, this is going to be something that might stop God's plan from going forward, in fact, it was what propelled God's mission from taking place, as believers had to flee from Jerusalem and spread into Judea and Samaria, and guess what happens there? Believers gather together, they pray, they proclaim the gospel, and God saves people. Okay? So that's what's happening uh, in chapter 8, and in chapter 9, we're introduced again to this man named Saul. We're getting a, getting a lot more information about him now, and we find that in chapter 9, at the early part of chapter 9, God saves him. God takes this man who once was bent on destroying the church. It tells us not only did he help oversee Stephen's execution, he would rip men and women out of their homes and commit them to prison. And just as, just as the gospel was spreading to Judea and Samaria, so was the opposition. And so Saul recognized what he needed to do is he needed to kind of further his mission by stopping the spread of the gospel. So he got permission to go to Damascus and make sure the gospel didn't spread any further there. But it's on his way to Damascus that Saul has an encounter with Jesus. This is what we looked at two weeks ago. And in Saul's encounter with Jesus, the end result is that Saul is converted. He's given a new family and he's given a new mission. This man who once made it his mission to ravage and tear apart the church is now going to be used by God as an instrument to build up the church, to be the one who would proclaim the name of Jesus to the ends of the earth. That's who Saul is now. So, that's what we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Now, Saul has recently been converted, and what are his first years of ministry going to look like? Does he get to move into a cozy three-bedroom, one-bath, ranch-style home, move into an office and kind of just get accustomed to what it's like to be a pastor and missionary. Let's read what the Word of God says in Acts chapter 9, starting in the middle of verse 19, which is where we left off a couple of weeks ago, and going through verse 31. If you're able to, please stand and we'll read God's Word. Beginning in Acts 9, Middle of verse 19 says this, For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus 
was the Christ. Now, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for your word. I'm just, I'm so encouraged by that last verse, that progress report of work that you were doing there in the first century. A great work that Jesus said his disciples would do and empowered by the Holy Spirit, they were doing it. And it's a work that I am so thankful has continued. As faithful followers of Jesus have proclaimed the good news, as people have prayed for the salvation of people that they love and even people they don't even know, and that you, God, have been faithful. There's nothing, no amount of opposition, no amount of persecution, no pandemic, nothing has ever been able to stop you from accomplishing your plan to build up and multiply your church throughout the globe for the sake of your name. And we are grateful today to be a small part of that work that you're doing. Pray that you'd be at work now by your Holy Spirit, helping us to to delight in the work that you did then and that you continue to do now. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and be seated. All right, verse 31. Uh, Tina, I think, uh, Tina or Chris, one of the two of them. I think Tina read that, mo- that uh, memory verse here at the beginning of the worship service. A great one. It's one of those summary kind of progress report verses. We're going to talk more about that later. Um, uh, but, but we're going to look now at how the church got to that point. So in your bulletin, uh, there is a sermon notes life group guide that I'd encourage you uh, to, to walk through. Um, if you're in a life group, that guide is there to help you dig a bit deeper and to work on application of the Word. And uh, if you're not in a life group, you can use it anyway. Uh, so, so that's there for you. Outline is in there right now. And you're going to see that as you maybe you heard this too, as I read through this passage, there's some things that kind of get repeated. Saul is mainly going to be in two different locations. And in both of those locations, here's what happens. Proclamation or preaching, suspicion, opposition, and support. Okay? Those things happen in both of those places where Paul is doing ministry. Now I say Paul sometimes, I say Saul sometimes. That's the way, that's the way they did it. Most of the time later in the book, Saul is going to be referred to as Paul, kind of his Greek name. Uh, but here, he's still being referred to as Saul. So if I say Paul, Saul, you know I'm talking about the same guy. Okay? So Acts chapter 9, verse 19, it begins with support. Verse 19, the, the last half of it just said this, For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. 
You remember earlier in chapter 19, when Jesus told Ananias to go and to lay his hands on Saul, Ananias' response was, uh, right, like, I know, I know that guy's history. Not sure that I want to, and, and Jesus convinced him, no, he is now a brother in Christ, right, and he has a new mission. Here's what he's going to do. And so, no doubt, others there in Damascus had probably the same reaction as Ananias. I'm not so sure about this guy. But eventually they accept him, and so he spends time with the disciples there at Damascus. So it begins with support from the church. And he didn't have like four years of college and three years of seminary. He just gets right to work doing the work of proclaiming the gospel. So, look at what it says there in verse 20. And immediately... It says, he didn't get his degree first, just immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the Son of God. Now this is the kind of thing that he wanted to kill people for, right? This is the guy, his mission in coming to Damascus was, I'm going to find people that are saying that Jesus is the Son of God, I'm going to call them blasphemers, I'm going to arrest them and take them back to Jerusalem to stand before the chief priests. But now... He's there in Damascus, in the synagogues, and he's the one proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God. God has done a transformational work in this man's life. Now, it says in verse 21, they were a little confused about this. All who heard him were amazed, it says actually, and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? So there was general support, but there was also some suspicion. Like, wait, hold on. Isn't this the guy that we were supposed to be afraid of? And now he's there preaching and saying, Jesus is the Son of God, and he keeps going. Verse thirty or 22. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So more proclamation. Okay, He's there in the synagogues telling the truth to the Jewish people about Jesus. Saying, and now think about this. Saul was uniquely gifted by God for this ministry because he had studied greatly. He was a Pharisee. He knew the Old Testament Scriptures better than most Jewish people knew the Old Testament Scriptures. And here he is using those very Old Testament Scriptures to show them that this Christ you've been waiting for, this Messiah, this King, I know him. He's Jesus. Right? He's doing this. He's been uniquely gifted for this ministry. And they're confounded by it. Look at verse 23. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. By God's grace, well, Luke doesn't say but by God's grace, but it is certainly by God's grace. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. So Paul seems to be having a fruitful ministry there, proclaiming Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Christ. And people are believing that, but there's also... Not like opposition, not like somebody wrote a mean thing about him on social media. Not that kind of opposition. I'm talking like they wanted to kill him, right? They were plotting to kill him, waiting for him at the gates day and night that they might kill him. And then we get another uh, instance of support from the church in verse 25. 
listen to this. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. That's what support had to look like from the body of believers there. It wasn't like, hey, give him a card and a check for Pastor Appreciation Month. It was, it was hey, we've got to get you out of here or you're going to die. And so they find a spot in the wall where they can lower him in a basket, probably the kind of basket used to hold grain, and they lower him over the wall so that he can escape in the middle of the night. He had been there for some time. Now, Luke just tells us this. Luke is the narrator, of course, here, and he just says, oh, where was it, in verse uh, 22? No, verse 23, he says, when many days had passed, okay? So he was doing ministry there in Damascus, the place where God had converted him. He's doing that, and Luke just says, when many days had passed. Quick note, you'll look at this more in your life group, but if you turned to, and we won't do it now unless you really want to, Galatians chapter 1, and in Galatians chapter 1, Paul tells a bit more of his story. And we find out from Galatians chapter 1 that the period of time that, that Saul was there in Damascus and neighboring Arabia was three years. So, so just so we get kind of the, the timeline in our mind, he comes to Damascus and he spends three years there until this plot comes about to kill him and he needs to escape to Jerusalem. Okay? So he's been there for three years. And again, they're not doing, like remember when, when Pastor Stan left, we, we did a little kind of appreciation thing right? But he's about to leave, and they're not like having a pitch-in dinner and ordering a DQ ice cream cake, right? That's not what they're doing. They're putting him in a basket and getting him out of town so he doesn't die, right? So where's he going to go? Well, he's going to go to kind of where the heart of the church still is, the city of Jerusalem. That's where the apostles have remained. And Paul is going to go there to join them. Certainly, when he gets there, they will welcome him with a Dairy Queen ice cream cake, correct? Verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him. For they did not believe that he was a disciple. Right? Their reaction is not welcome. Thank you for coming. It's uh uh-uh. uh. Right? So again, he's not greeted. Immediately with support, but with suspicion because of his history. How, how, is, the, how is this going to change, though? How, how are these suspicious people going to come around Paul and recognize that God has saved them and uniquely called him to ministry, and we don't need to be suspicious of him. We need to support him. How are they going to get there? Well, God's going to use one courageous man named Barnabas. Look at the next verse. But Barnabas, it says, verse 27, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So Barnabas does a risky thing. By the way, Barnabas' name means son of encouragement. That's a, a great name for this man named Barnabas, who comes alongside Saul as a great encouragement and says, with his arm around him, hey, listen, 
I, this guy has been saved. God saved him, and God has already been using him for the last three years to preach boldly in the name of Jesus up in Damascus. He's part of our family now. God's given him a new mission now. And the church then believes Barnabas, and it tells us in verse 28, so he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. So the church has moved from suspicion to now support. And that has allowed Paul to do the work of preaching boldly in the name of Jesus. So you see, these things are getting repeated. That's what he was doing in Damascus. Now he's doing it here, preaching boldly in the name of Jesus with the support of the church. And once again, we're going to see opposition, just like in Damascus. Now, Damascus, this happened after three years. Again, from reading Galatians 1, we find out this is happening after 15 days in Jerusalem. It didn't take him long to be doing ministry. He just got over his two-week anniversary of doing ministry there in Jerusalem when this takes place. Look at verse 29. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. Those are Greek-speaking Jews there in Jerusalem. But they were seeking to kill him. Once again, he's going to have to depend on the support of the church. Verse 30. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. They recognize, again, the church recognizes not all of us can do what Paul is doing. But Paul needs to keep doing what Paul is doing. And he can't do it here right now. So they figure out a way to get him out of town before he gets killed to go to Caesarea on his way to Tarsus. You might remember that Saul is sometimes referred to as Saul of Tarsus. So he is going back to his hometown. One other quick note as far as timeline goes. We're not going to hear from Paul again until... Barnabas goes to fetch him in the middle of chapter 11, and that is actually eight years later. So Saul's about to go spend eight years uh, in his hometown of Tarsus. So we're going to, like, Peter's going to become the main character again for a while in the book of Acts. All right, so we've gotten through verses, uh, through verse 30, but uh, all throughout the book of Acts, Luke has inserted some kind of summary statements or progress reports. Like, how, how's this mission that Jesus said the disciples were going to have, how's it going? And in verse 31, we get one of those summaries or progress reports of the mission. Verse 31 says this, So the church, throughout, now it says the church. Now, of course, well, let me finish the rest of that. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria. Okay? Remember Jesus said the Holy Spirit would empower believers to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Okay? So, so when he talks about the church, it's like talking about the church universal. Okay? There are multiple churches. Multiple small churches from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Galilee, all of that area. There have been churches planted as many, many people have come to faith in Christ. But they're all united together, even though they're not meeting together, right? So, So they're referred to here in the singular as the church. So the church throughout all Judea and Samaria and Galilee had peace. Now I have to assume that what was happening in places like Damascus and places like Jerusalem is continued opposition, 
right? That believers aren't just happily proclaiming the gospel and seeing people come to faith in Christ and living happy, comfortable lives. Yet, the summary of what's happening in the church is they had peace and they were being built up because a lot of times peace doesn't come when everything's going perfectly and being built up doesn't happen when everything's going perfectly. But oftentimes it's persecution that leads to the church being built up, right? It tells us this as well. And walking in the fear of the Lord. This is what the church was doing. This is a great summary. This is what the church is doing in the first century. This is how God is growing the church. How does God grow the church? The people are walking in the fear of the Lord. That is, they don't have a kind of casual association with Jesus. No, they're walking in reverent awe. In the fear of the Lord. This is their relationship with God. One of reverent awe. And in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Not everything is going perfectly. But the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now lives in them. And that Holy Spirit is is comforting and encouraging them as they walk in reverent fear of the Lord. And the result is peace in the church. God building up the church and the church being multiplied. That's a great summary. God is doing a great work here in the first century. And Luke pauses here at this spot in the story to just acknowledge that. What Jesus said was going to happen is exactly what's happening. God is fulfilling his plan. So, that gets us through the passage, but what about us? Because here we are, nearly 2,000 years later now. And I would say this, that church... God continues to do the same kind of work through the same kind of means, and it's a privilege for us to be a part of it. It's one of the things I just want us to get out of this today. Like, it is a privilege for us to be a part of this much bigger work that God is doing. So I have four quick application points that I think come out of this text. You're going to spend more time in your life groups walking through them than we'll spend this morning. So they all start with this. So church, let's, okay, the first one is this. So church, let's proclaim the truth about Jesus. That's what the church does, right? There's lots of different things that the church can do and maybe even should do. But if we're not proclaiming the the truth about Jesus, we're not proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we're not the church. We're just like a social service agency, right? That's not what we are. The church of Jesus Christ proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's ministry, that's how he started, right? Verse 20, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. God saved him and that's what he starts doing. And so we, and when I say we, I'm not just talking about like lost people out there or lost people in here. I'm talking about all of us, believers and lost people alike. What we need is we need to hear the gospel again and again and again. We need to again and again and again hear the news that one God has eternally existed and that one God spoke everything into existence. And everything He made, He made for His glory. And we also need to hear the news that there was sin. Sin entered into the world through Adam and Eve and rebellion against God, a, a people. And then all, ever since then, here's what we do. We like to think that we know better than God. Right? And so, so we do our own thing. It's called sin. We miss the mark. God has His standard. God has His law. And we all break it. We all fall short of the glory of God. That's us. We like to think like we're king, like we've got this. 
we're going to try harder to do better. And so that's what we recognize, though, don't we? That the world all around us is broken, and we recognize that we're broken. So what's natural for us is to try harder to do better. I'm going to work. I'm going to kind of, I'm going to fi- find out what God wants, what is good, what is right, and I'm going to try really hard to do that. In many cases, not recognizing that you're not going to save yourself that way. But God has one way for us to be saved, and that is that God sends His Son, who is fully God, Jesus, the Son. Fully God becomes fully man, right? So both fully God and fully man. And He lives a perfectly obedient life. The one that you and me and all of us failed to live, Jesus lives it. So He lives as our representative, and then He is put to death. Willingly, He dies in our place as our substitute absorbing the wrath of the Father intended for us so that all who are united to Jesus by faith, all who are born again through the work of the Holy Spirit, repent of their sin, putting their faith in Jesus, we're now united together with Jesus by faith. In His life, death, burial, resurrection, we now have new life in Christ. That same Spirit that raised Him from the dead now living in us, that we might daily fight against sin, and live on mission with a new family and a new purpose, a new mission that God gives us to do together, that the gospel of Jesus Christ might spread to the ends of the earth. So, church, let's proclaim the truth about Jesus. That's what the church does. Number two, let's expect opposition. Let's expect opposition. You know, in in Acts chapter 9 here, when when, God was, when Jesus was telling Ananias what the new mission for Saul would be, do you remember that what he also told him? This is in uh, Acts chapter 9, verse... Anybody see it? Because I don't. There we go. Okay, verse 16. Verse 16, he says... Let's read verse 15. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he, this is Saul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Okay? I think that was probably the expectation of all of the disciples because Jesus told them that. Flip back in your Bible really quick to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is sending out his disciples, and here's what he says to them in Matthew chapter 10, verse 21. Matthew 10, 21, Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. That's what Jesus told his disciples. Hey, hey, follow me. Guess what happens? Everybody's going to hate you. Oh yeah, where do I sign up? Right? That's what he told his disciples to expect. And I don't think it should be any... We've kind of gotten to a spot, especially in our nation. We've had kind of favored status for some time. Not only freedom, but we've also generally, as Christians, kind of gotten used to having some position of power and influence and been respected by others. And our culture's changing. And so, so Christians, rather than being uh, looked up to and respected by others, instead we're kind of seeing as like kind of narrow-minded and intolerant, and we don't have the kind of respect and power and influence we once had been accustomed to. Well, let's not be surprised. Let's not expect that, that we're owed that, right? 
We, we can't expect that I give my life to Jesus and then everything becomes peachy. More like I give my life to Jesus and everything gets a little more hairy. Right? That's probably more what we should expect. That's what Jesus told his disciples to expect. So let's expect opposition. And number three, so church, let's support those gifted and called to public proclamation ministry. Here's, here's one danger as we go through the book of Acts. That, that you see kind of these like all-stars. Like Philip, like Paul, like Peter. You're like, okay, I, I don't get that. Like, that's not me. God hasn't called me to this like crowds gathered and then they stood up and proclaimed the gospel of Jesus. Right? Some of you, like, you think you're maybe off the hook because... Well, I'm not like them. Like, I, I've not been called to, like, pastoral, mission, church planting, public proclamation ministry. And that's probably true. A number of you, most of you, have not been called to that kind of specific vocational ministry. But remember how in this passage, don't we see clearly that, that Paul really was called to this? He starts doing it right away. And, and it's recognized that he has a gifting for this. And what is the church's role here in, in the, this part of Acts chapter 9? The church's role is supporting and encouraging. I mean, they had to like, you know, find a way for him to keep doing his ministry. I could just say thank you. Like I, God has called me to a ministry of public proclamation. And you, church, have been very kind and helpful and supportive, not raising opposition, but supporting or suspicion, uh, at least publicly, uh, uh, and supporting me uh, so that I can do that ministry of public proclamation. And we do that with a number of others. Last week when I was away, Rich Churchill was here. For many years, our church has acknowledged, listen, God hasn't called me to move to Europe. God hasn't called me to take a couple years to get my PhD at, at, in, in, uh, in Illinois so that I can better raise up more church planters to plant churches all throughout. God hasn't called all of us to that. But one of the opportunities that we have when Rich comes back with us is that we can be a personal encouragement like a Barnabas to him. We also have the opportunity to, on a, on a regular basis, be praying for them and, and reaching out to them. I just, just talked to Terry Peterson uh, this week, who just, just wrote a letter of encouragement to our missions partner, Mandy Roger. There are ways that we can support those who are gifted and called to ministry in, in ways and to people that God has not called us. Or, it looks like uh, with uh, our associate pastor candidate who's coming. We acknowledge, most of you, like the only thing you really know about him is a couple things that we've mentioned and a three-minute introduction video. And then we're going to have another introduction video and a little sheet of paper. Right? And then we're going to ask the church, let's vote. Uh, so members of the church will vote whether or not we call him as our associate pastor. I hope that when he and his wife come, we would be affirming to them, acknowledging that God certainly has. Now, we, now again, so, so there's a kind of on the, on the part of the church, there's a trust of the leadership in the church, the search committee, the elders, those who have spent more time with them. And we have done the work of talking to people who've spent way more time with them, who have acknowledged, yes, this man is called to and gifted for and has the kind of godly characteristics that you would want in a pastor. And so we, with confidence, are coming together and presenting Nick to the church and saying, this is the man we're presenting as, as a, a candidate for 
associate pastor of this church. And hopefully we can be people as a church who come around and support and encourage him in that way. And then finally, number four, so church, let's rejoice that we get to be a part of God's greater work of building up and multiplying the church. Let's rejoice that we, you know, thinking about that summary verse in verse 31, Hey, you know, Iowa Falls, Iowa. I, I went to the EFCA, when I was away, the first couple of days of me being away was at the EFCA Central District Annual Conference. Even among, that's mostly churches in Iowa and Missouri. When people ask where I'm from and I say Iowa Falls, a number of people in Iowa don't even know where Iowa Falls is, right? Um, and then the people in Missouri think that's where the University of Iowa is, Iowa City, right? So, so, so we're, we're a pretty small little spot in a really big world. Yet God is doing something here. And he's doing something in all sorts of other little small places and large places all over the world. And we should just acknowledge it's a joy for us to be a part of a much greater work of God. That was one of the advantages of me going away for a couple of days to that Central District Conference where I'm reminded that God is doing something. God is, God is at work multiplying churches, doing things in in. in Accomplishing things that we can't accomplish ourselves alone, but that we need to cooperate with others. So, so the EFCA, what we say the EFCA is, it's on my mask that they gave me, uh, is multiplying transformational churches among all peoples. That's what we're about. And so here's what we're going to do. Um, they just kind of put together a newer, updated, uh, this is the EFCA. What is, because some of you, you've been a part of the Evangelical Free Church for a long time. Others of you, it's still new, and some of you didn't even know that you're sitting in an evangelical free church uh, right now. So, so here's, here's what's happening. Uh, we're a part of something much, much bigger than, any, than what we can accomplish on our own. So we're going to take like two or three minutes and watch a little introduction to the Evangelical Free Church of America video. So go ahead and play that. The EFCA, or Evangelical Free Church of America, is a family of self-governing churches united around the same core beliefs. Together, our mission is to glorify God by multiplying transformational churches among all people. The EFCA began in 1950, when two collections of churches, the Norwegian, Danish, and Swedish Evangelical Free Church Associations, merged together to form one Evangelical Free Church of America. Today, there are more than 1,600 EFCA congregations across the United States, and they come in all shapes, sizes, and locations, from small towns and suburban neighborhoods to major metropolitan areas. Our churches are supported by 17 regional districts that provide resources, expertise, and networking for local pastors and leadership. Those districts are then supported and resourced by the EFCA National Office in Minneapolis. Together, we strive to follow Jesus' commands to love others and make disciples of all people, both here in the U.S. and around the world. Globally, the EFCA recruits, trains, and supports more than 600 missionaries in more than 50 different countries across five different continents. Like beautiful Tanzania. And here in Germany. And here in Japan. In partnership with U.S. churches and locally-led ministries, we do things like 
help meet physical, educational, and spiritual needs of children through child sponsorship, respond to global crises with physical aid and spiritual hope, and send groups and individual young people around the world to learn leadership skills while making disciples. On a national level, we support and equip pastors and leaders within their local contexts, provide training and host events for student ministry leaders and youth groups, and lead nationwide ministries to promote ethnic and cultural diversity and share Christ's heart with the marginalized and oppressed. All of these different avenues lead back to one main goal, church multiplication. Whether it's global missions, crisis response, or student ministry, at the EFCA, everything we do aligns with our mission to glorify God by multiplying transformational churches among all people. So it is good to be a part of something much bigger. You know, I mentioned even that. So we're a part of, you know, one of 1,600 some churches uh, that are a part of the Evangelical Free Church of America. And even most people uh, within uh, the state of Iowa, if you mention Evangelical Free Church, that's a denomination that's hardly known. Uh, But I love that a whole bunch of kind of unknown places and unknown people and unknown churches and unknown denominations around the world are working together uh, to accomplish what God has said he's going to accomplish, that the gospel uh, would go forward right? to, to people of every nation, language, people, uh, tribe, tongue, all peoples, uh, getting to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they might repent of their sin and put their faith in Jesus. And so it's good for us to do that. It's good for us to see. That's one of the things we get to see here in the book of Acts. That, that this is happening. Jesus said it was going to happen, and it happens even in the face of all kinds of oppositions and plots to kill people like Saul. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are at work um, for your glory, multiplying transformational churches among all peoples, and I thank you that we get to be a part of that. Thank you that you're not just working here at Iowa Falls Evangelical Free Church. Thank you that you're not just working in the Evangelical Free Church of America, that you're working even in other churches here locally, other churches around the globe. We have brothers and sisters in Christ uh, from so many different nations, many of whom are experiencing the kind of persecution we read about in the book of Acts. And God, I just pray that as you are always faithful and that your plan will always be worked out, that, you, that we as your people would have a deep level of trust in you, and that we would prayerfully be engaged in your mission, that we would be people who support those gifted and called to public proclamation ministry, that we would expect opposition, but God, especially that we would never stop proclaiming the good news that Jesus is Lord. So God, thank you for allowing us to be a part of this work that you're doing and you will continue to do. In Jesus' name, amen.